Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Book Network. I am Deidre Tyler, host of the podcast. Today, we'll be talking with Christopher P. Barton, author of The Archaeology of Race and Class at Timbuktu, a Black Community in New Jersey. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How about yourself? Great. I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got started on this project. Okay. Um, so I'm originally from New Jersey, if you can't tell by my nasally accent. Um, and I was, uh, I was a graduate student at Temple University, and I was introduced to Timbuktu um, by my advisor, then David G. Orr. Um, and he had brought me on, given my experiences, uh, looking at African diaspora archaeology. And around 2009, I was then introduced to the Timbuktu Discovery Project, and that was a committee comprised of West Hampton Township uh, officials, uh, former residents, descendant community members, and then other scholars and interested public members that came together basically to discover or uh, explore the history and the archaeology of Timbuktu. Now, you talk about community archaeology in your book. Tell us about the stakeholders and the participants in the fieldwork. So that's a that's a very diverse range when we talk about community archaeology. So on one end of the spectrum, community archaeology could be things, the traditional models of looking at public archaeology. That is, the archaeologist is the producer of the knowledge um, and disseminates that to the public itself through an interaction that's often pretty top-heavy. Um, and that, in many many regards, that's kind of the archaeologist almost being the gatekeeper of the past. Rather, at places like Timbuktu, um, the approach that we take is more a collaborative aspect where you s- work with descending community members and interested uh, community members. That can be, again, former residents, descended community members, and descended community members is a very kind of vague um, terminology. There's a lot of different ways you can actually approach that. But the idea is that um, we work as equal partners 
myself as an archaeologist, I do not own a, uh, a monopoly on the past. I don't own, um, you know, uh, all the meaning and significance when it comes to the site. I'm a white dude from Jersey, you know, talking about black sites is a little bit complicated. You know, um, I don't understand things. I don't understand a lot of ideas of meaning and significance when it comes from different perspectives, different people from different backgrounds. But I do know how to excavate sites. I know how to make sense of thousands upon thousands of artifacts. And what I do is I try to use my craft as an archaeologist to um, provide different types of tools for other communities to help tell their stories. And we do this not at looking at community members as resources, you know, to be mined, right? Think of like oral histories historically or written, written records, but rather as equal partners in the exploration of the past. Now, Timbuktu was stationed along the Underground Railroad. Tell us about the area and how the Quakers played a role in that community. So Timbuktu was founded in 1826 um, by... Um, brothers, there's Hall, and then there's a few other people that actually, the the evidence suggests that they might have been quote-unquote runaway uh, captives from Maryland. Um, And among the Quaker, the white Quaker population, they find um, basically this opportunity to develop a somewhat autonomous community known as Timbuktu. And that's actually a similar pattern that we see in southeastern New Jersey, all the way up kind of leading into New York where you have what was called the, the Greenwich Line or the Greenwich Line of the Underground Railroad. And every spot that you see a Quaker community, specifically a Quaker stronghold, you'll find a similar autonomous black community located within a few miles. So um, there's Guinea Town uh, outside of, uh, that's near Salem. There's outside of Haddonfield. There's um, Lawnside. Uh and it continues all the way up to Timbuktu, which has a uh, close proximity to Mount Holly. So the Quakers offered formerly enslaved people um, basically the opportunities to have, you know, um, to, to eke out a life here. Um, that being said, in throughout history, the Quakers, though they themselves are against slavery and they offer some protections for formerly enslaved people, um, they do not see often many, I don't want to say all, but uh, many do not see black people as their social equals. And we can see that in the denied membership of black people into the society of friends. Um, we can see that from while it, they do offer employment, it is often very uh, low wage employment. Um, so it is still what, somewhat of a tumultuous history. And that was one of the things that we were really trying to explore understanding this idea of New Jersey's history, kind of the mythos that's been created, and then trying to add a new, another layer or a different little bit of nuance to it. What did you learn about the social and economic status of uh, Timbuktu? So that was, that's a, that's a great topic. Um, and this kind of is one of the reasons that, that drove us to talk about race and class. In the United States um, and elsewhere, what you'll what you see is because of the racialization of slavery that develops specifically in the Southeast and then it spans elsewhere. Because of this marker of race, because of this this notion of phenotype, right, connecting people and their physical traits, this idea of inferiority and all this, what it does is it then limits people's ability 
to garner things like economic capital, social capital, um, and political capital. And because this idea of black people being seen as other, right, this internalized notion that 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 permeates within uh, white society of black people being seen as other, as as somehow lesser, they're denied the chances for social mobility. They're denied the chances for uh, of progress. And at Timbuktu, while you know people are here, they're they're able to to find this notion of community. They're able to thwart uh, slave catchers. What you also see is a level of poverty um, that's very pronounced. But the sad thing is that while it's pronounced in Timbuktu, it's also a similar pattern that you see throughout many African-American lives in New Jersey and elsewhere throughout the nation. That being denied you know, economic opportunities largely because of race. So at Timbuktu, what we had noticed was looking at as we're engaging with this archaeology, you know, first one of the first things we want to do, like every archaeologist that does African diaspora archaeology, is we're looking for some clear-cut connection between, you know, the cultural practices that are happening here in the U.S. and tracing them back to West Africa. But as we start to engage with the actual materials and we're engaging with the artifacts, what we found was this discourse that we're coming out of, this story that was being told at Timbuktu, was a story of people negotiating you know, along not just the, the racial lines, but also navigating these class lines. And that's really what kind of drove us into our research pattern and kind of the, the overall stories that we've talked about. What type of jobs did the Quakers help Black people to find in the 1800s? What, what did you find there? So based off the census records, um, a lot of people were uh, laborers. So that's hired hands working either on farmsteads um, According to the census records, it also there were two brickyards located across the street from uh, from Timbuktu, a little bit of a ways down. And at those brickyards, uh, people were working as laborers. Um, uh, William Davis, who we had the opportunity to excavate um, his homestead, which included a house, a potential shaft feature, and an outbuilding, he was listed in the census records as a brick molder before he uh, enlists in the uh, United States Colored Troops, the USCTs, and fought in the Civil War. Now, for women, uh, it's listed uh, throughout the census records in the 1800s. They're listed as either being um, domestic servants, so working, again, in homes, uh, or taking in as laundry. And laundry is an interesting um, thing. Laundry is often done outside of the home, and for people who might be taking care of their families, their extended families, sometimes children of other people's, uh, of other families. Laundry is a great way to kind of take in um, and make a little bit of money on the side while you're tending to other activities. So what we see at Timbuktu is, again, this kind of low wage earning jobs um, with limited opportunities for social mobility, at least at the start. Okay. Now, the difference in the free Blacks that entered New Jersey, can you tell us uh, something about their experience from what you found? So people coming into New Jersey from outside that 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 were fleeing enslavement? Okay. Um, 
So from the written record, that's one of the things that's kind of hard to ascertain. And we see, you know, we, we don't have a lot of letters from Timbuktu in terms of primary documents in that sense. But what we do as a, we have reports of, um, uh, sorry, accounts of people um, having run-ins with slave catchers. And from that, we can glean some information. Some of the information that we could glean would be um, that Timbuktu itself was part of this underground railroad. Um, we can also see the level of community that is developed and that is, that is this, this community about protecting one another. Um, in terms of their overall experience, you know, these are people that were living in a perpetual state of fear, especially after the Dred Scott case, Fugitive Slave Acts. Um, you have an increase in slave catcher activities in the greater Philadelphia area. Um, but what we find at Timbuktu is that time and time again, this community, these people who had persevered, who had struggled, who had made the decision to flee and to find a new home, that when they came to Timbuktu, that they found a place where they were going to be protected. Now, what about the education of the, the black children in Timbuktu? So that's a difficult thing. Um, a lot of people don't know, New Jersey actually practices uh, racialized slavery, uh, not, sorry, um, racial segregation. New Jersey practiced racial segregation until the 1940s. At Timbuktu, um, there is a, quote, colored school that is established. But as we look at the, the written records, we look at some of, um, so there's uh, interracial committees that are established to talk about schools and the quality of schools. Um, what they say can time and time again is that the school located at Timbuktu was in a dilapidated condition and that it suffered from poor attendance. And the reason that it suffered from poor attendance was because many of the children that were attending the school also had to work jobs to help support their families. Again, this type of reflection of class. And that's one of the things that we noted within the oral histories of talking to people who are former residents and descendants is that telling about you know, that they grew up in, um, that they grew up hard, but they loved where they came from. And they talk about how um, education was emphasized, but at times it was unattainable given the constraints of, uh, you know, having to help support their families. Now, you went to the William Davis uh, site. What were some of the things you found at that property? So that was really, uh, so William Davis site, um, William Davis, he is, um, United States colored troop. Uh, he, uh, serves at the battle of Petersburg and takes a shot in the chest. Um, during the war, he, uh, becomes honorably discharged, but he continues to suffer from, uh, chronic back pain and rheumatism throughout the remainder of his life. Uh, he, he gets a, a pension from, uh, the, the union. But in 1879, uh, he purchases the Davis lot, which is only a 20 by 100 foot lot for the sum of $2 from the executors of Mary Simmons estate. There he builds a home that is uh, roughly about 14 by 16 feet. Here, him and his wife, Rebecca, 
raise five children. So that's seven people in a home that's about four by 16 feet. That's usually, that's probably about a one and a half story design. So think about a little tiny cottage with a loft up top. Um, so there, what we looked at just from a foundational standpoint, right? We looked at the foundation itself and what we noticed was that this was constructed of brick, brick being kind of relatively expensive at the time. Um, and within that, we were able to try to garner some ideas about this, this level of, of, what, uh, of poverty, but then also this type of improvising that we see at Timbuktu. Um, additionally, what we found was as we were ex- excavating the interior of this foundation, we came across about 14, uh, I think it was 14,463 artifacts. And what it appears to, to have had happened was after William and Davis, uh, William and Rebecca leave the home, the home itself gets torn down. Um, the interior of that foundation is then used as a community trash pile, what we call community um, uh, trash midden. And that is used by the community from about 1910 up until about 1940. Um, where you have bottles, you have uh, uh, tossed out ceramics, you have um, glasswares, you have architectural materials, all of this being collected in there. And what it did for us as archaeologists is gives us a nice little encapsulation to understand what was this community going through during periods going from the 1870s all the way up until the 1940s. And that's touching upon, you know, the immediate... Um, pretty much immediately following the end of the civil war. Um, that's also helping us talk about, um, uh, world war one, the great depression and world war two and the effects of that at the local level. Okay. You tell us about the movement of the people from Timbuktu to Philadelphia. What was going on there? So what happens is in, so Timbuktu has really like three, kind of periods where you have people that are coming in and then people that are, then times where people are, are leaving. Um, so the initial founding of the, of the community, 1826, in large part, this is probably the result of people fleeing areas like in Maryland, uh, below the Mason-Dixon line, and coupled that with the gradual emancipation law in New Jersey passed in 1804, which says that um children born after July 4th, 1804, women are going to serve their, quote, mother's master until they turn 21, and men will serve their mother's master until they turn 25. So this coincides with that same period of the founding of Timbuktu. So that, if you look at this 1820s, 1830s, right, this is a protected community, um, or rather, this is a community that's trying to protect itself from slavery, right, from um, issues of racism in the, in the larger area. And that's, again, that's one of the, the founding aspects. So the similarity that we see with all these African-American communities developing up and down um, New Jersey. Following, 18, following the Civil War, really, up into the 1870s, you have this additional um, uh, populating of Timbuktu. And this looks like, again, people who are either part of the great migration that are coming up or people that are settling into the area, knowing that there is a black community in the area, um, 
where you know they can call home. Finally, after that 1870s, what you have is the need for that protected community away, you know, protecting yourselves from the potential for uh, slave catchers and everything, that greatly diminishes. And as I discussed prior, wage earning jobs at in rural New Jersey, um, they were low and they didn't give people a lot of chance um, for social mobility. And what Philadelphia offered was the chance for, um, you know, better, better jobs, factory jobs, jobs that would pay better than staying in rural, um, uh, rural Burlington County. So you have a push for people to go out there, to go out and um, uh, move to Philadelphia and other cities. Uh, Camden's another one. Um, and it leads to this kind of decline of the community following the 1870s, 1880s. That community pops back up and starts to increase again circa the 1920s. And what that seems to be is more that people are starting to take over a little bit more land. The lots themselves start to expand a little bit more. Um, and in large part, this 1910 to 1920 community are many of the descendants uh, and the former residents that we're talking to today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Now, you you talk about several um, issues in your book, and one was the issue of yard sweeping. What was the meaning behind that? So that so um, that is a fun topic. So, um, all right. So one of the things about yard sweeping is trying to define it from an archaeological stance can be really difficult. Um, often what you see is when grass grows around your home or wherever, um, over time you'll have, you know, um, grass blades start to die, leaves, whatever. And that leads to um, that organic material starting to leach down. And as it leach down, it creates this kind of darkish band underneath it. And that's what it shows to us as archaeologists was that above that layer, right, what we call an A, um, it shows that if there was long enough time for grass to grow, then the idea is that then there's, an, there's a long enough time that perhaps people were occupying that layer above. So archaeologists are often trying to find these layers. Um, colloquially, we call those buried A horizons. Um, but at Timbuktu, what we found is that at the interpreted occupation layer, where the Davisons were living and, and doing laundry um, and socializing and, 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 and uh, working and, and having basically an extension of their home, uh, we didn't have that, that, that evidence for this buried uh, A horizon, this, this vegetation. Um, 
having coming back, coming, my educational background coming from African diaspora studies and African diaspora archaeology, I, I knew of yard sweeping. So I started to do some research looking into it. And it is one of the examples of a connection to West Africa that we found at Timbuktu um, that's, that's pretty prominent. In uh, parts of West Africa, the practice of yard sweeping um, was believed to push away evil spirits from the house as a way to protect the house. I grew up in a Catholic household. Um, my mom, to this day, still puts up crosses. And the idea of the cross over the doorway is not just for decorative purposes, but it blesses the person as they come into the house and it protects the house. This is a similar thing that we see here with yard sweeping. Additionally, yard sweeping um, helps to uh, keep pests away. Um, I live in South Carolina now and mosquitoes are everywhere. And the only time I can ever get away from mosquitoes is either if I'm on a dirt packed area or if I'm on the driveway because they love the grass. And yard sweeping can also help you keep those pests away. Um, it can help you identify if there might be potential snakes through, you know, snakes leaving their trails. Um, and one of the other things is that this swept compacted yard space is takes a 14 by 16 foot home and extends it, right? One of the things about Timbuktu is that the lots themselves are very, very close together. And what we found through our historical research was that many of the people at the time that William Davis is living there, many of them served in the same regiments as him in the United States Colored Troops. More than likely, these people know each other very well. They serve together and they've become friends. And in a, play, in a home that is 14 by 16 feet, trying to socialize with your friends can be a little bit difficult. But if you extend that area to the outside of the home, you have an extension of that household. You can socialize with your kids. You can do a little bit of work and you can catch up with your friends. Home canning and the peanut butter jars. Tell us about that. Um, so another fun topic. Um, so, and I, it may, I, I like peanut butter before I started this and uh, it just made me fall in love with peanut butter even more. Um, so home canning is interesting. Food preservation has been existing for millennia. Um, basically since the origin of our species. Home canning as we see it today, that little ball mason jars and everything, a lot of the origins of that actually come from the 1850s and the 1860s. As that industry starts to grow a little bit, what that gets starts to get marketed to middle-class homes. The idea that like you can take summer, summer peaches and you can go and, and have that in the winter. Or that the idea that when you have all of these jars filled with tomatoes and peaches and corn and pickles, that it becomes an artisanal display. Um, but what we find at Timbuktu is that, and this is something that we find elsewhere in, in similar communities uh, in New Jersey and also in Pennsylvania, is that home canning as it starts to progress and it starts to get into World War II and the government starts to say, hey, maybe you should do these victory gardens as a way to help, you know, diminish the need for, for you know, uh, civilians having produce and that, that can go to the war effort. Home canning becomes much more easy and efficient and we see it picked up by people in rural, rural communities and 
the people at Timbuktu incorporate it. They incorporate it um, as a way to basically take those summer harvests again and turn them into fall winter meals. What's interesting is that by the Great Depression, um, in large part, home canning starts to decline among um, a lot of populations in the rural communities. But what we found from the archaeological record at Timbuktu was that it actually continues on. That home canning practice goes straight from World War One through the Great Depression into World War Two. Consumer choice. You talk about social class, ethnicity, gender, and race. What about the access to the marketplace? Tell us about those connections. Um, I forgot to touch upon peanut butter. I'm sorry. Uh, the thing about peanut butter, real quick, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, the thing about peanut butter that makes it so phenomenal is that peanut butter itself is not, not a terribly popular um, item up until about 1910. Um, when peanut butter is actually created, at least the peanut butter that we understand today, um, it's more than likely a, a product of uh, the World's Fair. And what people living on the lower end of the economic spectrum start to find is that with peanut butter, you have a relatively cost-efficient, high-calorie time saver for food. And what you see at places like Timbuktu and elsewhere is the incorporation of peanut butter into, um, into their diet as a way to basically, you know, it's, it's a fast meal that you can make for your family. It can feed them. And again, it, you might cost a few, a few dollars to start, but you're going to get for the long term, it's going to benefit you. Um, sorry, just wanted to get that in. Can you, uh, can you ask that fr- previous question again? Yes. You, you talked about consumer choice. Tell us about social class, ethnicity, gender, race, and the access to the marketplace. So, um, access to the marketplace is, is interesting. Um, found in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, right? Um, America's starting to get enamored with this idea of consumer culture. And one of the ways that people start to define themselves, um, is through the acquisition of goods, right? Um, through bric-a-brac, through, um, uh, niche items, things that you're going to display. And for, one of my colleagues, um, Paul Mullins, did a really interesting work in uh, Annapolis. And what he had found was that there was a push among African-Americans in Annapolis for national brand products, um, things that came uniform, you know, like when you buy a bag of chips, it says 99 cents on the side, just as an anecdote from today. Um, and that there was a push for them purchasing things through catalogs. And what he surmised from it was that African-Americans in Annapolis were, would rather pay that extra couple dollars or however much more for a national brand product where they know that the quality is going to be consistent and they know that the price is fixed as opposed to them going to local markets where they might be swindled by um, white counterparts. And the idea was that... If you're sending your money away to a catalog, to Sears and Roebuck, Sears and Roebuck does not know your race. They don't know anything. All they care about is your money in this. And they're going to send you the exact same type of of object, of product that they would send to anyone else. And what we see at Annapolis and what we discovered at Timbuktu 
was that there was a similar type of of practice of trying to circumvent localized racism through the acquisition of consumer goods and products. Now, you talk about the black middle class identity. What were some of the significant items that you found to determine social class? Um, so Timbuktu, like many, many other African-American communities through time and space, starts to develop a middle class as we define it based off of economic and social practices. Um, the ways that that was being marked, uh, at least at Timbuktu, was through the acquisition of like display objects, right? So, um, and often these display objects themselves actually were inexpensive. Um, this is things like what we talk about depression glass, or we talk about um, press glass. So press glass is designed to look a lot like cut glass. Cut glass is much more expensive. And as we were looking at these materials, we noticed that there wasn't a lot of use wear, so there wasn't evidence for utensil scars or anything like that. And um, that more than likely these types of objects, this type of bric-a-brac, was being used to display, right? You put it up on your mantle or whatever. And for the longest time, I couldn't figure it out, right? It didn't make any sense to me. And um, I started to think about myself and my, my wife, right? So we got married when I was in graduate school and she had just started an entry-level job. And one of the things when you get married, you know, you go and you register and you, you they give you that little gun at Bed Bath & Beyond and you start just, you know, hitting everything. And so we started to, you know, get like this China, gravy boats, um, butter dishes, all this stuff. So we've been married. Uh, the other day was our anniversary, so it's been 14 years. And we've had the same set of china. We've had the same gravy boat and the butter. Now, we have been together for this long. We've had numerous Thanksgivings, Christmases, every event you can think of. And I don't think we've ever used this china. But this china sits on our mantle. And what I started to do is I started to think about this and, and the connection of this, this, this china where they were coming across to some of these objects of display. And what I found was that for so long, we thought of these objects that like if somebody came in and they walked past and they looked at this press gas plate from Timbuktu and they'd be like, wow, you know, that person, they're aspiring to be a member of the middle class. They're aspiring to this type of larger American consumer culture that's developing. And that that's very much the case. You know, similarly, my wife and I were probably registering these, these things because that's what you're supposed to do. You know, you're supposed to aspire to this, this type of, of level of of, of middle-class um, objects and materialism. But it was more than that. For my wife and I, you know, a graduate student eking by, a wife who just started her, her entry-level job, you know, we're eating a lot of ramen and a lot of peanut butter at the time. The idea was that the display of these objects isn't just for the onlooker, somebody who's walking by and see it, but it's for us ourselves to turn around and say, hey, listen, it might be a little tough right now, but, you know, those objects themselves right? They help us aspire to what we might be one day, right? That we might achieve this, this American dream. And that's one of the things that we argued at Timbuktu was that the story of, of black America, the story of Timbuktu is about people struggling, right? Struggling against issues of, of racism, of classism and people um, resisting those, Right, people at Timbuktu resisting against slave catchers, resisting against run-ins with the Ku Klux Klan, going and trying to find better areas and better better areas for employment. But the story of Black America doesn't doesn't end there. 
what it what's also about is it's about perseverance in this type of triumph that despite all of those setbacks despite hundreds of years of oppression and marginalization that people strive and people continue and they aspire um that's the story of not just black america but that's the story of the united states and that's the story that we saw as we were dealing with these materials of of display and of this type of consumer culture. Now, I thought it was interesting when you looked at the man family, what were some of the things you could find out about that family when you went to that location? Oh, this is my friend, uh, Megan, her, her. So um, I actually didn't go to that site. That's just a cross comparison uh, analysis. Um, so one of the things we did in Timbuktu was compare the archeological assemblage of Timbuktu to other sites in in New Jersey and just kind of in the Northeast in general um, to see, you know, is the story of Timbuktu um, so unique that it, it stands out from other, um, other black sites. And the man uh, site is, is similar here. This is a homestead. Um, there was also Skunk Hollow and then there's Sadler town was another one that we had discussed. And what we found was that Timbuktu itself in terms of its, localized history is incredibly unique. Um, the stories of the people who descended, the conversations that you have with them are so unique. But Timbuktu as a concept, as, as, a, as a settlement, as a black settlement of people trying to create a life for themselves, to protect themselves, um, that's a common story that we found throughout the Northeast um, and elsewhere. Um, we find it down here in South Carolina, um, where people trying again to persevere and construct a, a new way of life. What is the overall message you want to leave the reader with once they finish your book? Basically, you're looking to tell a story. So I would agree with that, right? So for so long, right, we thought that the, the purpose of archaeology is is to tell a story of the past, right? And that's it. And that, that we're going to create um, basically inventories, right? This is check, check off the list that this is what we found at this site. And this is why it's important and, and everything. And, and that's, that's important, right? That, that's an important view of what archeology span is. But one of the things that we tried to, with this book and a lot of my other works, um, I have another book out. It's called, um, Trials in the Trenches, Archaeology of Social Activism. And what it is, is archaeology, it's about studying the past to inform us in the present, to tell us, okay, how did we get here? And for my work, it's about looking and talking to people who haven't had the opportunities that I had and haven't had the privilege to come from marginalized backgrounds. And to say, well, how did we get to this point? How can we study that in the past? And the idea is that if we can study the past to help inform us in the present, ultimately, our ultimate goal is to make a better future, right? To use our knowledge that we generate through archaeology to create praxis in the world and create positive change in the world, to ultimately create a more humane and a better future for all of mankind. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on? Um, so I am working with, um, I have a couple projects. Um, geez. Uh, right now I'm, I'm working with a group, um, 
down here in uh, the PD region of South Carolina, there is a um, post-bellum black community called Jamestown. Um, Jamestown was founded by Irvin James in 1870. And in South Carolina, like throughout much of the, the country itself, we kind of followed this English model where we saw land equals power. And black people in South Carolina were, were continuously denied land ownership, right? Um, so much so that it became social taboo for a white person to sell a, a black person land. But Irving James turns around and, and him and his family purchased over 150 acres of land in the PD region. And they, there, they, they created community, um, protected itself because they understood that what was happening to other black Americans in the South who didn't have the opportunities um, for, to be part of the great migration that they were left into forced sharecropping and tenant farming. And what the James tried to do was it's, it's going to be a hard life and it, it's not always going to be easy and it might not be the best land, but at least it's their own. And they, um, they built a community there. And I work now with the Jamestown foundation under uh, the, the leadership of Terry James, descendant of Irving James, and we try to tell the stories about black land ownership, and then we try to connect it to issues uh, that black farmers face today in places like South Carolina. Well, sounds like an interesting project. And we would like to thank you for being on the pod- podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for having me.